16. The latter extending anywhere up to daybreak, as one expects to travel night and day until reaching his destination, his hour of starting is of no consequence, just before leaving he is occupied in making farewell calls, and is generally seen off by his friends, in the evening he has no warm bed to leave, no hasty toilet to make, and no disturbed household around him. With a vehicle properly arranged he can settle among his furs and pillows and is pretty likely to fall asleep before riding many miles. I was never reconciled to commencing a journey early in the morning, with broken sleep, clothing half arranged, and a picked up breakfast without time to swallow it leisurely. On leaving Cheetah we crossed a frozen stream tributary to the Ingoda, and proceeded rapidly over an excellent road. We met several carts, one horse affairs on two wheels laden with hay for the cheetah market, one man generally controlled three or four carts, the horses proceeding in single file, the country was more open than on the other side of cheetah, and the road had suffered little in the rains and succeeding cold, for some distance we rode near two lines of telegraph, one was a temporary affair erected during the insurrection of 1866, while the other was the permanent line designed to connect America with Europe by way of Bering Straits. The poles used for this telegraph are large and firmly set, and give the line an appearance of durability. The captain was fond of dogs and had an English pointer in his baggage. During the day the animal ran near the carriage, and at night slept at his master's feet. He was well inclined toward me after we were introduced, and before the journey ended he became my personal friend. He had an objectionable habit of entering the tarantas just before me and standing in the way until I was seated. Sometimes when left alone in the carriage he would not permit the Yanshiks to attach the horses. On two or three occasions of this kind the captain was obliged to suspend his tea drinking and go to pacify his dog. Once as a Yanshik was mounting the box of the Tarantas, Boyk jumped at his face and very nearly secured an attachment to a large and ruddy nose. Spite of his eccentricities, he was a good dog and secured the admiration of those he did not attempt to bite. We passed the Yablonoi Mountains by a road far from difficult. Had I not been informed of the fact I could have hardly suspected we were in a mountain range. The Yablonoi chain forms the dividing ridge between the head streams of the Amur and the rivers that flow to the Arctic Ocean. On the south we left a little brook winding to reach the Ingoda, and two hours later crossed the Uda, which joins the Selenga at Verkmiunsk. The two streams flow in opposite directions. One threads its way to the eastward where it assists in forming the Amur, the other through the Selengat, Lake Baikal, and the Yenisei, is finally swallowed up among the icebergs and perpetual snows of the far north, one to long darkness and the frozen tide, one to the peaceful sea. Chapter XXV. Beyond the mountains the cold increased, the country was slightly covered with snow, and the lakes were frozen over. In the mountain region there is a forest of pines and birches but farther along much of the country is flat and destitute of timber. Where the road was good our tarantas rolled along very well, and the cold, though considerable, was not uncomfortable. I found the chief inconvenience was, that the moisture in my breath congealed on my beard and the fur clothing near it. Two or three times beard and fur were frozen together, and it was not always easy to separate them. From the Yablonoi Mountains to Verkmiudens there are very few houses between the villages that form the posting stations. The principal inhabitants are Buryats, a people of Mongol descent who were conquered by Genghis Khan in the 13th century and made a respectable fight against the Russians in the 17th. Since their subjugation they have led a peaceful life and appear to have forgotten all warlike propensities. 
their features are essentially Mongolian, and their manners and customs no less so. Some of them live in houses after the Russian manner, but the yurt is the favorite habitation. The Buryats cling to the manners of their race, and even when settled in villages are unwilling to live in houses. At the first of their villages after we passed the mountains I took opportunity to visit a yurt. It was a tent with a light frame of trellis work covered with thick felt, and I estimated its diameter at 15 or 18 feet. In the center the frame work has no covering, in order to give the smoke-free passage, a fire, sometimes of wood and sometimes of dried cow dung, burns in the middle of the yurt during the day and is covered up at night. I think the tent was not more than five and a half feet high. There was no place inside where I could stand erect. The door is of several thicknesses of stitched and quilted felt, and hangs like a curtain over the entrance. The eyes of the Buryats were nearly always red, a circumstance explainable by the smoke that fills their habitations and in which they appear to enjoy themselves. In sleeping they spread mats and skins on the ground and pack very closely. Two or three times at the stations in the middle of the night I approached their dwellings and listened to the nasal chorus within. Though people are early risers, if I may judge by the hours when I used to find them out of floors, as to furniture, they have mats and skins to sit upon by day and convert into beds at night. There are few or no tables, and little crockery or other household comforts. They have pots for boiling meat and heating water, and a few jugs, bottles, and basins for holding milk and other liquids. A wooden box contains the valuable clothing of the family, and there are two or three bags for miscellaneous use. In the first year I entered I found an altar that was doubtless hollow and utilized as a place of storage. A few small cups containing grain, oil, and other offerings were placed on this altar, and I was careful not to disturb them. Their religion is Buddhistic, and they have their lamas, who possess a certain amount of sanctity from the Grand Lama of Thibet. The lamas are numerous and their sacred character does not relieve or deprive them of terrestrial labor and trouble. Many of the lamas engage in the same pursuits as their followers, and are only relieved from toil to exercise the duties of their positions. They perform the functions of priest, physician, detective officer, and judge, and are supposed to have control over souls and bodies, to direct the one and heal the other. Man, woman, child, or animal falling sick the lama is summoned. Thanks to the fears and superstitions of native thieves he can generally find and restore stolen articles and has the power to inflict punishment. The Russian priests have made very few converts among the Buryats, though laboring zealously ever since the conquest of Siberia. In 1680 a monastery was founded at Troitsk for the especial purpose of converting the natives. The number who have been baptized is very small, and most of them are still pagans at heart. Two English missionaries lived a long time at Selimansk, but though earnest and hard-working I am told they never obtained a single proselyte. It is a curious fact in the history of the Buryats that shamanism was almost universal among them 200 years ago, practically it differed little from that of the natives on the Amur. Toward the end of the 17th century a mission went from Siberia to Thibet, and its members returned as lamas and bringing the paraphernalia of the new religion which they at once declared to their people. The Buddhistic faith was thus founded and spread over the country until shamanism was gradually superseded. Traces of the old superstition are still visible in certain parts of the Lama worship. Most of their religious property, such as robes, idols, cups, bells, and other necessaries for the Buddhist service come from Tibet. A Russian gentleman gave me a bell decorated with holy inscriptions and possessing a remarkably fine tone. 
Its handle was the bust and crown of a Buddhist idol, and the bell was designed for use in religious services, it was to be touched only by a disciple of the true faith, and its possession prophesied good fortune. Since my return to America it occupied a temporary place on the dining table of a New England clergyman. The Buryats manufacture very few articles for their own use, they sell their sheep to the Russians, and buy whatever they desire. Their dress is partly Mongol and partly Russian, the inconvenient portions of the Chinese costume being generally rejected. Their caps were mostly conical in shape, made of quilted cloth and ornamented with a silken tassel attached to the apex. Their trousers had a Chinese appearance, but their coats were generally of sheepskin. After the Russian model, their waist belts were decorated with pits of steel or brass. They shave the head and wear the hair in a queue like the Chinese but are not careful to keep it closely trimmed. A few are half Mongol and half Russian, caused no doubt by their owners being born and reared under Muscovite protection. I saw many pleasing and intelligent countenances, but few that were pretty according to Western notions. There is a famous Buryat beauty of whose charms I heard much and was anxious to gaze upon. Unfortunately it was two o'clock in the morning when we reached the station where she lived. The unfashionable hour and a big dog combined to prevent my visiting her abode. From the mountains to Verkniudens most of our drivers were Buryats. They were quite as skillful and daring as the Russian Yenchiks, and took us at excellent speed where the road was good. The station masters were Russian, but frequently all their employees were of Mongol blood. Some part of the carriage gave way on the road, and it was necessary to repair it at a station. A Buryat man of all work undertook the job and performed it very well. While waiting for the repairs I saw some good specimens of iron work from the hands of native blacksmiths. The Buryats engage in very little agriculture. Properly they are herdsmen, and keep large droves of cattle, horses, and sheep, the latter being most numerous. I saw many of their flocks near the road we traveled or feeding on distant parts of the plain. The country was open and slightly rolling timber being scarce and the soil more or less stony. Each flock of sheep was tended by one or more herdsmen armed with poles like rake handles, and attached to each pole was a short rope with a noose at the end. This implement is used in catching sheep, and the Buryats are very skillful in handling it. I saw one select a sheep which became separated from the flock before he secured it. The animal while pursued attempted to double on his track. As he turned the man swung his pole and caught the head of the sheep in his noose. It reminded me of lasso throwing in Mexico and California. In looking at these flocks I remembered a conundrum containing the inquiry. Why do white sheep eat more hay than black ones? The answer was, because there are more of them. In Siberia the question and its reply would be incorrect, as the white sheep are in the minority. In this the sheep of Siberia differ materially from those I ever saw in any other country. The flocks presented a great variety of colors, or rather, many combinations of white and black. Their appearance to an American eye was a very peculiar and novel one. At one station a beggar crouched on the ground near the door asked Ums as we passed him. I threw him a small coin, which he acknowledged by thrice bowing his head and touching the earth. I trust this mode of acknowledging courtesy will never be introduced in my own country. We frequently met or passed small trains of two-wheeled carts, some laden with merchandise and others carrying Buryat or Russian families. Most of these carts were drawn by bullocks harnessed like horses between shafts. Occasionally I saw bullocks saddled and ridden as we ride horses, though not quite as rapidly. A few carts had roofs of birch bark to shield their occupants from the rain, 
From appearances I judged these carts belonged to emigrants on their way to the Amur. At the crossing of a small river we found the water full of floating ice that drifted in large cakes. There was much fixed ice at both edges and we waited an hour to have it cut away. When the Smotril announced that all was ready we proceeded to the river and found it anything but inviting. The Buryat pronounced it safe. And as he was a responsible party we deferred to his judgment. While we waited a girl rode a horse through the stream without hesitation. We had four horses harnessed abreast and guided by the Yamshik. Two others were temporarily attached to head under control of a Buryat. As we drove into the river the horses shrank from the cold water and ice that came against their sides. One slipped and fell, but was soon up again. The current drifted us with it and I thought for a moment we were badly caught. The drivers whipped and shouted so effectively that we reached the other side without accident. On the second evening we had a drunken Yemshik who lost the road several times and once drove us into a clump of bushes. As a partial excuse the night was so dark that one could not see ten feet ahead. About two o'clock in the morning we reached the station nearest to Verpniudensk. Here was a dilemma. Captain Molostov had business at Verpniudensk which he could not transact before nine or ten in the morning. There was no decent hotel. And if we pushed forward we should arrive long before the Russian hour for rising. We debated the question over a steaming samovar and decided to remain at the station till morning. By starting after daylight we might hope to find the town awake. The traveler's room at the station was clean and well furnished, but heated to a high temperature. The captain made his bed on a sofa, but I preferred the tarantass where the air was cool and pure. I arranged my furs, fastened the boot and hood of the carriage, and slept comfortably in a keen wind. At daylight the Yamshiks attached horses and called the captain from the house. He complained that he slept little owing to the heat. Boyka was in bad humor and opened the day by tearing the coat of one man and being kicked by another. The ground was rougher and better wooded as we came near the junction of the Uda and Selenka, and I could see evidences of a denser population. On reaching the town we drove to the house of Mr. Pantukin, a brother of an officer I met at Chita. The gentleman was not at home and we were received by his friend Captain Sidorov. After talking a moment in Russian with Captain Molostov, our new acquaintance addressed me in excellent English and inquired after several persons at San Francisco. He had been there four times with the Russian fleet, and appeared to know the city very well. Verpniudinsk is at the junction of the Uda and Selenga rivers, 300 versts from Irkutsk and 450 from Chita. It presents a pretty appearance when approached from the east, when its largest and best buildings first catch the eye. It has a church nearly 200 years old, built with immensely thick walls to resist occasional earthquakes. A large crack was visible in the wall of a newer church and repairs were in progress. In its earlier days the town had an important commerce, which has been taken away by Irkutsk and Kyotka. It has a few wealthy merchants, who have built fine houses on the principal street. I walked through the Gastini Devere but found nothing I desired to purchase. There were many little articles of household use but none of great value. Coats of deerskin were abundant, and the market seemed freshly supplied with them. My costume was an object of curiosity to the hucksters and their customers, especially in the item of boots. The Russian boots are round-toed and narrow. I wore a pair in the American fashion of the previous year and quite different from the Muscovite style. There were frequent touches of elbows and deflections of eyes attracting attention to my feet. A large building overlooking the town was designated as the jail, and said to be rapidly filling for winter. There are many vagabonds in this part of the country 
said my informant. In summer they lie by begging and stealing. At the approach of winter they come to the prisons to be housed and federal during the cold season. They are generally compelled to work, and this fact causes them to leave as early as possible in the spring. Had your journey been in midsummer you would have seen many of these fellows along the road. While speaking of this subject my friend told me there was then in prison at Verknudensk a man charged with robbery. When taken he made desperate resistance, and for a long time afterward was sullen and obstinate. Recently he confessed some of his crimes. He was a robber by profession and acknowledged to 17 murders during the last three years. Once he killed four persons in a single family, leaving only a child too young to testify against him. The people he attacked were generally merchants with money in their possession. Robberies are not frequent in Siberia. Though a traveler hears many stories designed to alarm the timorous. I was told of a party of three persons attacked in a lonely place at night. They were carrying gold from the mines to the smelting works. And though well-armed were so set upon that the three were killed without injury to the robbers. I was not solicitous about my safety as officers were seldom molested. And as I traveled with a member of the governor's staff I was pretty well guarded. Officers rarely carry more than enough money for their traveling expenses, and they are better skilled than merchants in handling firearms and defending themselves. Besides, their molestation would be more certainly detected and punished than that of a merchant or chance traveler. My tarantass had not been materially injured in the journey, but several screws were loose and there was an air of general debility about it. Like the deacon's one-horse shay in its 80th year, the vehicle was not broken but had traces of age about it. As there was considerable rough road before me I thought it advisable to put everything in order, and therefore committed the carriage to a blacksmith. He labored all day and most of the night putting in bolts, nuts, screws, and bits of iron in different localities, and astonished me by demanding less than half I expected to pay, and still more by his guilty manner, as if ashamed at charging double. The iron used in repairing my carriage came from Petrovsky Zavod, about a hundred miles southeast of Verkhneudinsk. The iron works were established during the reign of Peter the Great, and until quite recently were mostly worked by convicts. There is plenty of mineral coal in the vicinity, but wood is so cheap and abundant that charcoal is principally used in smelting. I saw a specimen of the Petrovsky ore, which appeared very good. The machine shops of these works are quite extensive and well supplied. The engines for the early steamers on the Anor were built there by Russian workmen. There are several private mining enterprises in the region around Yurkneudinsk. Most of them have gold as their object, and I heard of two or three league mines. During the night of my stay at this town Captain Sidorov insisted so earnestly upon giving up his bed that politeness compelled me to accept it. My blankets and furs on the floor would have been better suited to my traveling life especially as the captain's bed was shorter than his guest. I think travelers will agree with me in denouncing the use of beds and warm rooms while a journey is in progress. They weaken the system and unfit it for the roughness of the road. While halting at night the floor or a hard sofa is preferable to a soft bed. The journey ended. The reign of luxuries can begin. Chapter XXVI When we left Verkhneudinsk we crossed the Selenka before passing the municipal limits. Our ferry boat was like the one at Stransk, and had barely room on its platform for our tarantas. A priest and an officer who were passengers on the steamer from Blagoveshchensk arrived while we were getting on board the ferry boat. They had been greatly delayed on the way from Stransk, and waited two days to cross the Nurcha. The Selenka was full of ice, 
some cakes being larger than the platform of our boat. The temperature of the air was far below freezing, and it was expected the river would close in a day or two. It might shut while we were crossing and confine us on the wretched flatboat ten or twelve hours, until it would be safe to walk ashore. However, it was not my craft, and as there were six or eight Russians all in the same boat with me, I did not borrow trouble. The ice cakes ground in pleasantly against each other and had things pretty much their own way. One of them grated rather roughly upon our sides. I do not know there was any danger, but I certainly thought I had seen places of greater safety than that. When we were in the worst part of the stream two of the ferrymen rested their poles and began crossing themselves. I could have excused them had they postponed this service until we landed on the opposite bank or were stuck fast in the ice. The Russian peasants are more dependent on the powers above than were even the old Puritans. The former abandon efforts in critical moments and take to making the sign of the cross. The Puritans trusted in God, but were careful to keep their powder dry. A wide sand bank where we landed was covered with smooth ice, and I picked my way over it much like a cat exercising on a mirror. The Tarantas was pushed ashore, and as soon as the horses were attached a rapid run took them up the bank to the station. A temporary track led across a meadow that furnished a great deal of jolting to the mile. Eight versts from Verpneudens the road divides, one branch going to Kyotka and the other to Lake Baikal and Irkutsk. A pleasing feature of the route was the well-built telegraph line, in working order to St. Petersburg. It seemed to shorten the distance between me and home when I knew that the electric current had a continuous way to America. Puck would put a girdle round the earth in 40 minutes, from China to California. More than half the circuit of the globe, we can flash a signal in a second of time, and gain by the hands of the clock more than 14 hours. From the point of divergence the road to Kyotka ascends the valley of the Selenga, while that to Irkutsk descends the left bank of the stream. I found the Kyotka route rougher than any part of the way from Chita to Verpneudensk, and as the Yenshik took us at a rattling pace we were pretty thoroughly shaken up. At the second station we had a dinner of schi, or cabbage soup with bread and the caviar of the Selenka. This caviar is of a golden color and made from the roe of a small fish that ascends from Lake Baikal. It is not as well liked as the caviar of the Volga and Enor, the egg being less rich than that of the sturgeon, though about the same size. If I may judge from what I saw, there is less care taken in its preparation than in that of the Volga. The road ascended the Selenka, but the valley was so wide and we kept so near its edge that the river was not often visible. The valley is well peopled and yields finely to the agriculturalist. Some of the farms appeared quite prosperous and their owners well to do in the world. The general appearance was not unlike that of some parts of the Wabash country, or perhaps better still, the region around Marysville, Kansas. Russian agriculture does not exhibit the care and economy of our states where land is expensive. There is such abundance of soil in Siberia that every farmer can have all he desires to cultivate. Many farms along the Selenka had a straggling appearance, as if too large for their owners. Par contra, I saw many neat and well-managed homesteads, with clean and comfortable dwellings, with better implements of husbandry and a more thorough working of the soil. The peasants along the Selenka would find agriculture a sure road to wealth. Under the present system of cultivation the valley is pleasing to the eye of a traveler who views it with reference to its practical value. There were flocks of sheep droves of cattle and horses, and stacks of hay and grain, everybody was apparently well federal and the houses were attractive, we had good horses, good drivers, 
and generally good roads for the first hundred versts. Sometimes we left the Silinka, but kept generally parallel to its course. The mountains beyond the valley were lofty and clearly defined. Frequently they presented striking and beautiful scenery, and had I been a skillful artist they would have tempted me to sketch them. The night came upon us cold and with a strong wind blowing from the north. We wrapped ourselves closely and were quite comfortable. The dog actually lolling beneath our sheepskin coverlid. Approaching Selinyansk we found a few bits of bad road and met long caravans laden with tea for Irkutsk. These caravans were made up of little two-wheeled carts, each drawn by a single horse. From six to ten chests of tea, according to the condition of the roads, are piled on each cart and firmly bound with cords. There is one driver to every four or five carts, and this driver has a dormitory on one of his loads. This is a rude frame two and a half by six feet, with sides about seven inches high. With a sheepskin coat and coverlet a man contrives to sleep in this box while his team moves slowly along the road or is feeding at a halting place. All the freight between Kyotta and Lake Baikal is carried on carts in summer and on one horse sleds in winter. From Kyotta westward tea is almost the only article of transport. The quantity sometimes amounting to a million chests per annum. The tea chests are covered with raw hide, which protects them from rain and snow and from the many thumps of their journey. The teams belong to peasants, who carry freight for a stipulated sum per pood. The charges are lower in winter than in summer, as the sledge is of easier draft than the cart. The caravans travel 16 hours of every 24 and rarely proceed faster than a walk. The drivers are frequently asleep and allow the horses to take their own pace. The caravans are expected to give up the whole road on the approach of a post carriage, and when the drivers are awake they generally obey the regulation. Very often it happened that the foremost horses turned aside of their own accord as we approached. They heard the bells that denoted our character, and were aware of our yamshik's right to strike them if they neglected their duty. The sleeping drivers and delinquent horses frequently received touches of the lash. There was little trouble by day, but at night the caravan horses were less mindful of our comfort, especially if the road was bad and narrow the post vehicles, contrary to regulation, were obliged to give way. It was three or four hours before daylight when we reached Selenyansk, and the Yemshik removed his horses preparatory to returning to his station. I believe Selenyansk is older than Verkhneudinsk and very much the senior of Irkutsk. The ancient town is on the site of the original settlement, but frequent inundations caused its abandonment for the other bank of the river, five versts away. New Selenyansk, which has a great deal of antiquity in its appearance, is a small town with a few good houses, a well-built church, and commodious barracks. During the troubles between China and Russia concerning the early occupation of the Amur and encroachments on the celestial frontier, Selenyansk was an important spot. It was often threatened by the Chinese, and sustained a siege in 1687. A convention was held there in 1727, and some provisions of the treaty then concluded are still in force. Mr. Bistaujev, one of the exiles of 1825, was living at Selenyansk at the time of my visit. There were two brothers of this name concerned in the insurrection, and at the expiration of their sentences to labor they were settled at this place. Subsequently they were joined by three sisters, who sacrificed all their prospects in life to meet their brothers in Siberia. The family was permitted to return to Europe when the present emperor ascended the throne, but having been so long absent the permission was never accepted. The river was full of floating ice and could not be crossed in the night. 
and we ordered horses so that we might reach the bank at dawn. Both banks of the river were crowded with carts, some laden and others empty. A government officer has preference over dead loads of merchandise, and so we were taken in charge without delay. To prevent accidents the horses were detached, and the carriage pushed on the ferry boat by men. The tamed and fiery steeds followed us with some reluctance, and shivered in the breeze during the voyage. We remained in the Tarantas through the whole transaction. The ice ran in the river as at Verpnilunsk, but the cakes were not as large. Our chief ferryman was a Russian, and had a crew of six Buryats who spoke Mongol among themselves and Russian with their commander. From Silimins to Kyotkal, a distance of ninety versts, the road is hilly and sandy. We toiled slowly up the ascents, and our downward progress was but little better. We met several caravans where the road was narrow and had but one beaten track. In such cases we generally found it better to turn aside ourselves than to insist upon our rights and compel the caravan to leave the road. The hills were sandy and desolate, and I could not see any special charm in the landscape. I employed much of the day in sleeping, which may possibly account for the lack of minute description of the road. The only point where the cold touched me was at the tip of my nose, where I left my dihar open to obtain air. The Russian dihar is generally made of antelope or deer skin and forms an admirable defense against cold. Mine reached to my heels, and touched the floor when I stood erect. When the collar was turned up and brought together in front my head was utterly invisible. The sleeves were four or five inches longer than my arms, and the width of the garment was enough for a man and a boy. I at first suspected I had bought by mistake a coat intended for a Russian giant then exhibiting in Moscow. This article of apparel is comfortable only when one is seated or extended in his equipage. Walking is very difficult in a dihar, and its wearer feels about as free to move as if enclosed in a pork barrel. It was a long time before I could turn my collar up or down without assistance, and frequently after several efforts to seize an outside object I found myself grasping the ends of my sleeves, the W.A.